Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. How are you? Good. Thanks, Andrew. How are you? Oh, we're back here again. I know. Let's just jump in today because we've got quite a lot on. I think there's two things that are vexing me a little bit. (laughs) One is every Christmas we go through this process of having serious injuries and fatalities pre and post Christmas as people adjust to leave and to disengaging. And complacency just hits the roof. And it's a feature every year for us. It's around about a third of all our serious injuries and fatalities happen within a period of around about 20 days. So it's something we see every time. And I think the High Court and both the Victorian Supreme Court have constantly said where where something becomes inherently risky, then there is an obligation to intervene even though you can't see an injury happening. And I think what they would say about these circumstances now is that this is such a pattern that employers must take deliberate action prior to holidays, particularly in physical environments, to say to people, look, this is a high-risk time. It's like yeah. most deaths happen on the road within two kilometres from home. Yeah, exactly. Same sort of issue. The other one is WorkSafe in Victoria have just laid two charges of industrial manslaughter. I think you and I are now seeing on a weekly basis category one, three to four weekly manslaughter charges. Yeah. And I think the switch is flicked. I think that the regulators are now in a place of comfort for going after jailable offences. The most recent ones in Victoria, which are just charges, don't go against an individual, but can later be laid against an individual. And will likely be. <laughs> I think so when you look at the facts in the case. So I think for all of us, we've got to understand where we sat pre-COVID in a place that there was 11 Category 1 reckless endangerment charges laid in three years, one prior to that. The speed of that change has been quite remarkable post-COVID. Yeah, I agree. So there's just a putting your hands up for governance. What are the two things we need to look at? Times where risk changes because of behaviour or attitude and second officers aren't safe in their castles anymore, I think is the answer. (laughs) Okay. Let's just jump to the first case. It's not so much a case, it's more of a circumstance around the gig economy and we've seen Deliveroo go under. Yeah, that was the big one that everyone was waiting for. Yeah, so we're not going to get a good determination for all of you to understand that the gig economy sits in three places. They're either an employee a contractor and two dissenting judgments have said there must be something in the middle, which is how it's seen overseas, except except in America where Uber's continuing to fight the battles. We've seen an Uber case here where Justice Snadden sat on the fence and wouldn't give a summary judgment. So at the moment, the gig economy is still in flux. flux. And I think the most important thing, if you're in the gig economy, is what is the nature of the contract and the substance behind it? And for those who are in startup land who in some ways reference the gig economy, spend your money on getting the contracting and process right so that you don't end up with a judiciable issue. Yeah, because that's what it's going to come down to. Like, although we might be waiting for these test cases to eventually eventuate a test, it will all come down to the contract. Yeah, and the answer is the High Court's been really clear about contracts. So you don't have to try and be, you know, I keep giving my father's (laughs) warning about being too smart by half. Just get it right. Yeah. And that is a great defence unless there is very substantive change in the law, and that will be by legislation, not by case law. There's a lot of times where people think, look, let's take the shortcut, let's make it simple, but it's just going to cost you more in the long run if you don't get it right. How often do we deal in our our start-up scale-up practice with people saying, I just want a one-page employment contract? 
and then we deal with restraints, equity and all these issues and they just blow up into uncontrolled litigation at another time and people lose their intellectual property. So yeah. get it right first time. Over to you, new gender pay gap. Yeah, so on 8th of February, they've introduced a new bill where I think it's in April, April next year maybe, where businesses over 100 will start having to officially report on their gender pay gap. It's a good thing, isn't it? We're safe. You're paid more than me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's a good, look, it's a small change in line of all of the respected work and everything else, but it's a step in the right direction, I think. It's a pig on the wall, isn't it? Because what it says is you can say what you like, but you've got to tell the truth. And this is a real challenge in flexible work, which has not been adopted by a lot of Australian business to say, who are the people who work best in flexible work? I've got to tell you, it's women. Why? Because they spend their life working flexibly as primary care, as a lot of them. Yep. So they're and actually they're incredibly <laughs> they're incredibly good at it. So the gender pay gap is something which is going to be very challenging because the old hierarchy of payment based on presentation, it's gone. Yep. I think this is probably the case that you and I most wanted to get into, which is Kelly and Lance Lanskoff. Yeah, this one was just stupid. And can you I believe you were going to say that. it was a law firm, I think it was. That's right. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't us. <laughs> okay. So essentially they had terminated or the manager resigned Yes. and they decided, look, we're not going to pay you your wages. We're not going to pay you your own entitlements and we're going to make a false claim against you so you can never access your entitlements. This is what the law firm thought would be a great idea. Yeah, cunning plan. Yeah, not only did they have to pay her 130k in entitlements, interest, and damages, they then got fined. I think 180 something thousand. thousand. Yeah. So can I just come back to Crazy. something? It doesn't matter what your claim is against, even someone stealing. Yeah. You have to pay your entitlements. It is, in terms of litigious practice, I can simply come along and apply for judgment against you if you don't pay me. If you don't pay, yes, you get interest, yes, you get penalties, but you also get, because it's an adverse action, you also get general damages. Yeah. And general damages in this case were relatively low because the penalty was so high, so general damage was $30,000. But this is sort of dumb and dumber because there is actually no defence to non-payment of entitlement. It is yeah. a statutory obligation. So never think when you have somebody goes, uh, why don't we offset this and go? No, you can't. You can't. Okay. Now, there are offset provisions that exist under the Fair Work, yeah, but yeah. they must be reasonable to the person who is having the offset, yeah. not to you. And also, there is an entitlement to withhold wages under some awards, but it's limited. There is no yeah. entitlement to withhold. No, no, it's up to two weeks as a maximum. Leave entitlement, yeah. yeah. So, look, anyone who says that to you, it's a red flag. The moment they say it to them, walk up and slap them in the face and say, now, let's talk about reality. Yeah. You always pay people their entitlements. And please don't use it as a bargaining chip for a deed because that essentially means you've made them sign under duress, yeah. which is a whole other of And that also is an adverse action, intimidation, yeah. coercion. So now we've got one of my favourites, I must say. <laughs> it is my favourite. Can I just say, if you don't like it what someone says, don't punish them. That is just my rule. The, construct- the CFMEU and BM Alliance is a mining company case where a guy who worked for Workpac, yeah, who was a labour employee. employee, quite properly identified two or three quite significant safety issues. They didn't like what they heard and they batched up a, an issue around yeah, so not being Yeah, so he failed safe. to do something with the isolation policy and they focused on that. And which was spurious. He got a warning over it. So he got a warning from Workpac and then he was refused on site, which finished his casual placement. Engagement, yeah. And 
Not surprising the Fair Work Commission absolutely canned the employer and the host and just said, actually, he was raising a safety issue. Now, this was done as a general protections claim. Can I just... Against the host employer, though, that's just right. to be clear. Yeah, yeah. So that's what's really unique about this case because obviously Workpack was in the role as well. Yeah. But I think what's really unique is host employers constantly think they've got a right to just refuse workers for any reason. No, you're absolutely right. But the other part is this could have been a prosecution. Oh, yeah. And it could have been, it's a Section 76 under our OHS Act in Victoria, 106 and WHS. For discrimination. And you've seen Patrick's case, which gave a $180,000 penalty for this type of behaviour. Yeah. So this could have been much worse had the union woken up in the morning and thought rather than gone for the cheap option. This could have been a very significant case and that would have damaged a person whose contract's are based on government connection. It would have damaged yeah, their supply true. chain. It would, it would have been a horrific thing to do. Yeah. So please, if you don't like what someone says about safety and they're right, shut up and fix it. Don't try and punish them because you don't like the news. Yeah, you can't take the easy option out, unfortunately. Well, Nina, we've got through those cases. They were great cases. But <laughs> <laughs> let's go on to our major theme today, which is about management of change. And I think for Nina and I, the last six months have been an exhausting time as we help people navigate change. Yeah, because there's so much coming um, through. You know, COVID was a change where we tried to say to people, look, this is a significant change. Whether you bring people back or not, you must consult, provide clarity, give certainty. It creates psychological hazards because people get scared. They arrange their life. People like predictability, and the neuropsychology is predictability creates perfection. So brains naturally go to doing what they do in a repeatable and accurate way. Yeah. So when we change things, we're actually hurting people, and you've got to understand that. Yeah. You might think it's a great idea, but and it probably is a great idea, but how you do it is important. Yeah, I think it's <clears> not <throat> change that hurts people. It's change without that consultation and that making people feel safe about that change. And buying into it. Yeah. So for Nina and I, this thing, when we're chatting about this, there's sort of four different paths that you look at. You look at people management change, and we'll look at John Cotter's theory very briefly on change, which all the HR people start yawning. It's actually (laughs) coming up there for us now. Thank you very much. So what Cotter basically said, and Cotter's changed this 20 or 30 years later to say there is so much change, it is identifying what the change is, creating the motivation and story, and as a leader, not getting caught up on the spreadsheet, but getting up on moving people along. But what he does say very clearly is there is a conception stage, there is a planning consultation stage and there's an execution stage. And the most important thing to remember about that is you must create this sense of urgency. And you'll see my stages are coming up there, which are (laughs) stages one, two and three, and you can have a look at those at another time. But what I want you to understand is that's just one part of it. The major part of it is that the moment you move from conception, which is like a CAPEX stage, which is saying I've got a cutting plan, it looks like this, it creates this profit, it creates this people utilisation, this is the benefit. That's all very good. You haven't made a decision. A decision triggers industrial relations. Yep. So you need to cultivate and craft how you make a decision through your documentation so you don't too early trigger your industrial yeah. relations responsibility. But the moment, the moment you start to implement a plan, you have the first stage of safety consultation. And, again, there's nothing new about safety consultation. It actually sits in Section 38 of the OHS Act and in its brother provisions in WHS. And that says the standard of care is reasonably practical. So the moment I get something like that, I've got to go, okay, what hazards the 
does it create? And who do I consult around hazards? Well, I can I talk about financial risk because yeah. I need resources. I go to maintenance and engineering. I go to Ops. people who use it. Yeah. What you can't do with safety cheaply is retrofit safety. Yeah, or retrofit consultation. I think a lot of businesses think it's a nice to have instead of an obligation, yeah. but it's actually a requirement under statute. And when we look at the prosecutions we deal with, that primary stage of consultation is the one that always sets up liability. Yeah. The failure to do that leaves inherent risk inside an operation. And if we look at our last four or five serious <laughs> injuries, three of them relate to this primary failure of early consultation and safety. So that's one thing. The second thing is the moment we discuss change, we change the way, way work is going to be designed, we run straight into psychological hazards issues. Known hazards, defined in legislation. Again, we go back to reasonable practicability. Hazard, known, risks. High. High. <laughs> control mechanisms. Consultation is the primary method because it yeah. draws out the risk assessment process. And gets you the data of what the... And here's the rub. And what it says under the section is it then identifies not only what are the controls are, but what is the education and understanding that is necessary to safely execute. So we've got to the stage and we've crafted our documents carefully, okay? We haven't made a definite decision because that triggers the award provisions, but we've had this consultation process. We've brought it back into the design process and said, okay, so this is what we're going to do. This is the infrastructure. This is the people behaviour that we're going to have. This is financially how we're going to fund it and source it. This yep. is the education and consultation structure. We've wrapped it up. Yep. At that stage, you must document the decision because at that stage, you trigger the secondary consultation under the safety law, but most importantly, the management of change because this is normally has a significant effect. Yeah because it changes the hours or manner in which a person works and in many cases creates redundancies. Yeah. And remember, these are people who work for you. So they deserve to know the truth early because when you do that under award, your obligation is to consult immediately with affected workers and most cases their representatives or their identified representative, depending on the enterprise yep. agreement or award. And the effect of that consultation is to describe exactly what the change is, not just to say we want to consult with you. And it's impacted. And it's impacted. And then to mitigate or ameliorate the effect of that on people. So this isn't, I'm just going to go and have a chat to you. This is a three-part consultation, which is town hall meeting, this is what we're going to do, letter directly to each affected employee Finding saying. the change. Yep. Individual meeting with that particular employee, then final outcome. Yeah, and also I think we should say also that it's not just limited to that. If they raise genuine things that you want to consider, then that should be done through further meetings before you get to the outcome. Exactly. And the other part is although consultation under industrial relations doesn't require agreement, it must be genuine. And if you don't do genuine consultation, then the union can bring direct proceedings in the federal court or can bring dispute proceedings and it depends whether your enterprise agreement has old clauses around status quo, that could stop everything you're going to do. So this isn't hard. I, I guess what Nina and I are saying, it's not hard, but people get so excited to institute change, yeah, they forget right. that three days is a lifetime in change. Yeah. And the biggest risk are not machines that you introduce, it's the people who use those machines. Yeah. So now you've got to this stage where we're about to execute, we've made a definite decision, we've created documents and emails that identify we're about to make a decision, 
We've made a decision. The decision is complete, so it's discoverable in litigation. It sets out all the elements of consultation and safety and the risk management part that sits behind it. It's a document that protects everybody. Yep. And it protects you from prosecution down the line because it shows you've taken into consideration risk. It means your workers' compensation risk around reasonable management action when you're dealing with people who are under stress is defensible, so your premium is safe. And then you come to the stinker, which sits right in the middle of this, which is discrimination law, which says, well, actually, a number of people may not be able to make the change you hope, and your enterprise agreement says they must. But that's not what discrimination law says. Discrimination law says people with a protected attribute are protected. Yeah. unless you can come up with a reasonable adjustment. And that is an individual adjustment, not a collective adjustment. And once again, during change, people are always happy to go, well, if it's good enough for one, it's good enough for all. Yeah. In discrimination law, that's just poking yourself in the eye with a fork. So again, when you're about to do change, you must go individually into the circumstance of each through it. And that discussion that Nina talked about is to identify what are the matters that are going to jump up in front of us. How are we going to adjust it? And it's a matter of just respect. You know, the example that comes to mind is um, when my father was unwell, a principal who was working with me wanted to get hold of me. My father had two weeks to go in his life and became angry at me on the phone because I said, look, I'm at the palliative unit. I've got to see my dad. And they went, well, you know, when are you going to be finished? And I said, well, I'm not sure when he's going to be finished. He's dying. The insensitivity that comes around need at times means that we damage and hurt people. Yep. And damaged and hurt people litigate, so it's stupid. But the other part is, you know, we're a moral society. We create great businesses around great people. And how we treat the most difficult people is a window into how we treat everybody. And I guess the lesson about change is everyone's a little bit difficult. We must individualise it. We must think it through. And we must come up with a plan which is sound and fair. That was very poignant. Yeah. Shocking from you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a story that's hard to let go, that story, I might say. So if you can think about that, you've got four areas of law that are directly affected. Two of them, workers' compensation and safety, come in in stages two and three. After conception, the moment you go into the execution stages, the planning and execution stages, they're there because psychological hazards arise. They're there because in a statutory form, You must do two series of risk assessments pre and once you commission and then you run into the industrial part on the third stage of execution once a definite decision has been made. I think for Nina and I, we've never seen a good set of documents around this. Yeah, and I think it's probably the area where terminations and redundancies fall over the most. Like if you look at all the cases in the commission, the courts, that's what the union's focused on because it's such an easy area to pick up. And they can't lose because yeah. the moment you try and produce documents, there's none. Yeah, and please all this, use documents. Yeah, and there's all the side <laughs> conversation where John said to Terry, yeah, look, we're going to do away with this line so Yeah. And that's a definite decision. And that's evidence of a definite decision that was never communicated three months before. Or during the consultation say, yeah, you're probably going to be made redundant, but you know, we have to talk to you about it, yeah. like So <laughs> it is a good time to get your lawyers sitting in the back room to actually craft that process for you, not because I want more work because at the moment we're struggling, <laughs> yeah. but because I'd really love it if you had a suite of documents that a court looked at and thought, gee, sensitive, generous, thoughtful employer, mindful of individuals, done appropriate risk assessments, gee, defence to safety prosecution, premium protection, industrial protection, and you know what? It's going to land well 
which is great, which means the people risk is going to go from it. So that little bit of investment has a really big outcome and that's because of how we've bumped into this over the last four or five weeks, both of us, through change, I think it's something we just wanted to come back and refresh people's memories with. Yeah, I think it's it's good to distill it down because everyone thinks of it in such an overwhelming thing. So many things hitting us. How do we do it? And you're right, everyone rushes through because eager to get through it all. But And don't like to say the bad things. So yeah. I just want to get it done quickly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Now we're going to go on to the case study, which I don't think Nina's even read, so you can read it out loud now. <laughs> Mutt Smith was a pet food wholesale and retail business supplying the inner southeast suburbs with costly carts for pampered pooches. They started with one shop in the trendy gentrified enclave of Brunswick, but soon expanded to the leafy southeast. You really miss Matt, hey? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Their butchering processing plant was in Abbotsford. It started off having working hours from 6 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., which were within the ordinary hours under the award. Processing was originally through usual butchering methods aided by a bandsaw, but as the business grew, it became obvious it would soon need an extra shift and some pre-shift overtime on Thursdays and Fridays to fill the shops for Friday and Saturday trade. Further, it involved the development of a mechanised line around mincing from beef, lamb and kangaroo with other food additives to produce their premium products that were sealed in organically suitable paper containers that were biodegradable. I did that for Matt. (laughs) (laughs) There would be no loss of skilled jobs, but they would spread across shifts, but it would involve lower skilled plant operators, warehousing and food safety skills in recruiting new people. For the butchers, much of the practical skill they had applied prior to the suggested changes would go with new automation. Mutt Smith had entered into an EA with the employees in 2022, and it allowed the addition of afternoon shift with two weeks' notice. Mutt Smith, although growing was small, the Abbotsford premises employed 32 people. Everyone knew the boss, Rob Wheeler, and Rob had the habit, liked by his employees, of floating ideas for discussion around change and improvement. Very forward thinking. Yeah, Rob Willis. That's almost dog, isn't it? See, Rob Willis. <laughs> I thought you would have picked it. <laughs> Rob had spoken to Everett about how busy they were, asked who would be interested in doing an afternoon shift. The plant and equipment had already been purchased when Rob's foreman gave written notice to employees of the new shift roster change, including regular Thursday and Friday pre shift overtime. If that couldn't be agreed, he would introduce a new early morning shift as the ordinary hours clause had been changed by the EA from 6 to 6 to 4 a.m. to 6 p.m. Employees had already seen jobs on seek in the weeks before the announcement and the refitting of the adjacent part of the building for the new line. A day later, each employee received a written notification around the changes of hours with seven being advised they would move to afternoon shift in two weeks' time and the remainder advised of pre-shift overtime rotating between them in cohorts of eight. One week on, three weeks, no pre-shift overtime. The EA had a status quo clause. It was not the model award provision. Now, I thought, seeing as we both shop at Meatsmith, that could be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's have a look. Can I just say part of this problem is very real, isn't it? It's the sort of stuff we yeah, do, deal with every day. Weirdly familiar. So let's have a look at this. You have a question one. Nadine was a single mum who had a seven-year-old child. She had arranged with her brother who started work at 9am to care for her daughter before school and take her to school. But she had no family to collect her daughter at 3.30pm from the school next to Mark Smith. Her current hour, 6am to 3pm, allowed her to collect her daughter straight after work. Kennedine refused to change in hours to afternoon shift and or pre-shift overtime. 
So good question, isn't it? So what are the issues that are raised here? So there's psychological hazard risk in the fact that there's a work design change. Yep. She's got carer's responsibilities. Yeah, exactly. so, so discrimination So risk. there's a discrimination and a direct award breach, a direct Fair Work Act breach. Yep. Yep. So it's pretty challenging, isn't it? And although the industrial instrument entitles the change. I don't think they consulted with her properly. They haven't cons- so that's it. Yeah. So the first part is there's no consultation. The reasonable adjustment would be to provide a suitable period of time within which she can adjust. It would not be the two-week period and it would be the step in behind her to provide that level of support. And see if it works and adjust as necessary. That's right. So there is a way through this but not doing this. Yeah, but Mud Smith would get bitten in the bum by this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next question. The union entered the site to investigate imminent psychological hazards, placed the change in dispute and brought the matter before the F's Fair Work Commission on an urgent application, what would they argue? What's the change in dispute? Oh, as in the dispute of the change. change yeah. Right. Well, well they just bring a dispute application. That's all yeah, they'd have to do. That's their go-to. But they could also bring in, like, on, I guess if they represented her, they could bring in discrimination. Uh, well, they, they could. No, they can't yet. Just not yet. They can't oh, bring that soon. in. Soon they can. But yeah. the most important thing, they could bring it on the basis of her gender. Yep. Okay. But it would be problematic. They can certainly go directly to the federal court. Yep. But they go to the Fair Work Commission under an urgent application for dispute and that would drag this process out for five months. Yeah. And the status quo would prevent you from doing it. Yeah, so you basically have to just keep on going as you get The status on. quo means yeah. that you can't continue with the change. And mm-hmm. so a lot of clauses keep that residual clause, particularly in the manufacturing sector, unaware of the risk that comes with it. So that's what we're highlighting there. Make sure you go to your change clauses and if you've got in your dispute resolution status quo, then you really have a problem. You must get it out of your enterprise agreement. I think the other thing is couldn't they also raise this with WorkSafe? And bring Definitely. in yeah, they could. prosecution through that way as well. Okay, next one. Mutt Smith offered no psychological support network or process during the introduction of change. Is that necessary under safety, IR and workers' compensation? Well, there's the question. So the answer is yes, under workers' compensation because it has <laughs> nothing to do with normal law So <laughs> because it's a nonsense jurisdiction. So the failure to actually provide people with access to psychological support and workers' compensation would destroy any psychological, any defence to any psychological claim, okay? Do you under safety? Any defence? It just goes. That's mm. crazy. So there's three or four cases over the last year. They're nonsense cases. So two of them are South Australian, which is an even bigger nonsense jurisdiction. But the idea that you you create a change in the way someone is going to be managed yeah. and you don't and it would have an effect, reasonable person would view it could have an effect on them, and you do nothing to provide that level of support, even at the consultation stage, is a proper basis for someone developing a psychological claim. So what kind of support would you need to provide? So what you need to say is, um, look, I need to talk to you about a change that's occurring. This could have significant impact, so what I want to do is provide you with a copy of what we're going to do, but I'm going to provide you with the services. You know, you can ring this service. Oh, like offering AAP? yeah. Right at the beginning. That's a requirement under work. Well, it's, well. it's not written in there, but if you don't do it, your reasonable wow. management actually just goes. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So it's a dumb, dumb and silly jurisdiction, but it's a costly one because the premium impact's enormous. Under safety law, if you were aware or reasonably be aware of a risk or hazard and you failed to monitor health and fit around the obligations of putting a control around that, mm. yes, you would. Under IR, 
Very unlikely. No, there's no requirement yeah. of the AIR. So I just wanted to show you it all sits a bit differently, but it could be under safety. It is under workers' compensation. Yeah. And remember, when you're doing change, it's a composite. It's not one or the other. Yeah, you've got to account for all risks. So you bill for failure. And the short yeah. answer is putting on the bottom of your letter an EAP address and making available some good psychological counselling service on the side. Costs very little because almost no one takes it up. Yeah. But it is a good thing if people do need it. And what the Fair Work Commission and federal courts say when they see it is generous, good, thoughtful employer concerned about it. It changes the cultural norm you've got sitting in court. You go from yeah. being the person being attacked to someone doing the right thing. It's essentially like offering a support person, even knowing that they yeah, the super, it. as my little daughter would say, a super support person. <laughs> <laughs> someone even more qualified. Now, that's it for this week. It's been great to be back. We are super busy. Yeah. <laughs> And we've had lots of challenges and change ourselves. So thanks very much for coming yeah, along. thank you for tuning Matt, in. and particularly and Grace. And Grace and Tex, yeah. Grace, I hope yeah. everything's going well. And hurry up back here because we're wearing out. Yes. Give us a thumbs up. Give us the thumbs up. See you later, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.